Good morning. We haven't met. Uh, I want to introduce myself. My name is Michael Walters. I'm glad to be with you here uh, this morning. And I'm going to make a little room here. The best preachers, I don't know if you know this uh, about preachers, um, but uh, the best that preachers can ever hope for when they uh, are approaching the pulpit is that they will try to preach. Um, And that's also true for the listener, in a sense, that you will try to hear a sermon, try to have the Spirit uh, preach uh, to you, the, the Lord Jesus preach to you. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the bread of life, for by it we are fed, and we are nourished, and we pray, Lord, that you would indeed feed us by your word. We are your children, we are called by your name, and we are destitute and without strength unless you feed us. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd feed us by your word, we pray that you'd open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word, that you'd nourish us here that you'd reign all around us, holy manna, that each one may gather what he needs. For we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to begin uh, today kind of with a little bit of a review. You all have been studying the book of Galatians, and I'm just kind of jumping in here with you in this series. And uh, I'm thinking about the, the general purpose, why Paul was, was writing. You see at the beginning of of Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the, uh, the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Uh, at the beginning of Galatians, Paul is very intense about something. Uh, Paul's written 13 uh, of our New Testament letters, about 13 of them. In nine of those 13 letters, he begins with a thanksgiving. So right after he says grace and peace to you, he says, I, I thank God for you. Uh, in nine of 13 of those letters. Uh, in 11 of those 13 letters, he begins on some kind of warm note. After he gives the grace and peace, he says something warm. So like in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about God being the God of all comfort. And so he's comforting uh, the Corinthians. In just two letters, Galatians and uh, 1 Timothy, Paul gets right down to business, which means he's, he's really uh, uncharacteristically urgent about something here. What is Paul so fired up about in Galatians? So this review, this is kind of a quiz. What's Paul fired up about? Why is he concerned here in Galatians? What's that? False teaching. Okay, what's the false teaching that the Galatians are exposed to? They have to have Jesus, but then they have to add something to to Jesus. They have to have something more uh, than Jesus. Uh, So the the Galatians are facing uh, this, uh, this temptation towards a heresy that they would have to add something to Christ. And uh, the, the form that that took for the Galatians was that they would have to add circumcision, uh, ceremonial laws, food laws, and, and so forth uh, to their, their faith with Christ. They've, they've come to know Christ, they're born again, uh, and yet they think they need to add something else here. Now, it's, it's uh, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm guessing that not many of us here today are really struggling with taking up food laws as a way to justify ourselves. Am I right? Uh, that's not really one of my day-to-day struggles. I've got, I've got things I'm working on, but that's not one of the things that really is a br- front-burner issue uh, for, for me and, and for us. So, um, what do we have in common with the Galatians? How can we benefit from Paul explaining to the Galatians that that's not a good avenue to go in? Uh, what's similar with our struggles and their struggles? Uh, well, the Galatians were trying to add, uh, add something to Christ. They were, they were tempted to not simply be satisfied with being just, justified by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, and something that helps me understand this uh, for our own life is uh, this the diagram that, uh, that I've seen in, with sonship uh, with these crosses. You see it here. Uh, this diagram represents the, the Christian life, the timeline of the Christian life. So the straight line uh, before the crosses, uh, the flat line there, uh, represents your time before coming to know Christ. Uh, and so uh, at that time you don't really uh, see... Uh, any urgency for the gospel. And then when you come to hear the gospel, you come to realize and have your eyes open spiritually, you see your own sin. And that's, that's represented by that line that goes diagonally downwards. 
Uh, you see your own sin, and you also see the holiness of God. And so that's re- represented by the line that's going diagonally upwards. And you see that there's a gap between you and between God, you, and that you, you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that you, uh, you can't stand before this, this holy God. And then, and then the gospel is preached to you, and you understand that Christ uh, died for your sins. And so uh, his blood takes the punishment for your sins, and he reconciles you with God the Father. And so you're in communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, uh, and you worship Jesus because he's covered the gap. Now this, this timeline represents also sanctification. So as you grow as a Christian, uh, part of what you're doing here is you're seeing more of your sin. And you're seeing more of God's holiness. Uh, by the way, have you all seen this chart before? This is a sonship chart, and I, I think Phil would have uh, mentioned this to you before. So as you see more of God's holiness, you see more of your sin, you, there's either going to be a gap there that's not going to quite reach, or, uh, or you see a bigger Savior. You see that Jesus actually uh, is a greater Savior than you realized at first. And so your view of Christ expands, and you appreciate more of, uh, of what Jesus has done for you. Now the danger that we have is that we grow further and we have this uh, increasing awareness of our own sin and increasing awareness of God's holiness, but our view of Christ doesn't increase. Uh, we just simply see him as we saw him five years ago. Uh, but we see that, well, uh, I'm, I'm not really what I thought I was five years ago. Uh, I'm, I'm more messed up than that. And, uh, and so we try to fit in a wedge, uh, a performance wedge, where we try to make up for our lack that's there. And if I can kind of get to where I was thinking of myself before, five years ago, then, uh, then I'll feel okay about, uh, about how sufficient Jesus is. And so we kind of want to kind of help out Jesus and stick in that performance wedge. So at times we don't really trust God's uh, promise, um, and we try to take things into our own hands. We try to just help out God with, um, with our, our own works. That's, that's kind of what the Galatians were doing. They were not trusting God's promises, and they were trying to help God with their own works. Uh, when Rachel and I moved to Florence, my wife's name is Rachel. I was a pastor, fellow pastor in Florence for a while, Florence, South Carolina. Uh, we rented a house for a while and uh, looked around, shopped around, and eventually found a house, moved into this house, and when we got to this new house, uh, we got a, a welcome package, a care package from a local church. And uh, in this care package, they had this. I don't know if you can see this from where you are. I'm sure you can't. Uh, but you, can you tell what this is? It's not a stir stick for paint. Do you know what it is? It's a ruler. It's just a ruler. And it says on there, uh, it says the name of the church, and it says helping people measure up. Um, may- maybe when Phil comes back from sabbatical, you can suggest to him a new motto for Two Rivers, uh, helping people measure up. Uh, when, when I see that in a church, I can say, oh, well, that's, that's easy to spot. I can see the error there. Uh, when I see that kind of a notion in other people, I can say, okay, I see the problem there. They're trying to add to uh, the work of Christ. They're, they're trying to measure up. But at times, I can be oblivious to the same problem in myself. And I know that you can do that too. Uh, that there are certain ways that we try to fit in that performance wedge that we can be blind uh, to the fact that we're trying to kind of help out Jesus and what he's doing. Well, the main thing that Paul is trying to get across to us in our section here today is that the promise can only be received by faith. That's what he's been trying to get across all through Galatians, and he continues with yet another argument, because this is such a profoundly important issue, and our justification hangs upon it. Our relationship with God hangs upon it. Our spiritual vitality and life and vigor hangs upon this issue. Where we find problems uh, when we're going astray in the Christian life, it all comes back to this issue of whether or not we find this, uh, this confidence that, uh, that the promise is, uh, is true. And so first of all, I want us to, to look at uh, chapter 4, verse 21. The first thing that we see here, uh, tell me you who desire to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Paul is pointing out the old way to receive what was promised. What was the old way to receive the promise? Uh, what was the old way under, under Moses? How were people saved in the Old Testament? Not rhetorical question. Tell me, how are people saved in the Old Testament? Did, did maybe under, under Moses, God kind of graded on a curve because he saw, that well, of course you're not going to be good enough, but maybe if you're just better than your peers, then you can be in communion with me. Is that how God worked during the time of Moses? Is that how David was saved? 
No, David was not saved. How are people saved in the Old Testament? Same way we're saved today, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as he's proclaimed in the Scriptures alone. Uh, that was proclaimed through Moses in, in so many vivid and descriptive ways. Uh, anybody who's ever saved since the fall was saved by trusting in Christ. Um, they were not saved by works. God didn't grade on a, on a curve in the Old Testament. Let me show you this uh, from, from our, our text here. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6, our, our context here. Chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed in God, uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So was Abraham saved? Yes, Abraham was saved and he was saved by faith. Uh, okay, so we've, we've got this illustration of Abraham. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 3. So then you who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Uh, incidentally, when you come to chapter 3, verse, verse 23, now before faith came, they were held captive under the law. Uh, when's the time before faith came? It can't be the time of Moses and the time of Abraham because he just pointed out faith was there. Anybody who's ever saved is always saved, saved by faith. Uh, chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 11 as well. Now this, it is evident that no one is justified before God uh, by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Where's that quote from? The righteous shall live by faith. I'm asking you to remember Phil's sermon from his last sermon here. Where, where did he quote that from? Where did Paul quote that from? Anybody remember the, the uh, I couldn't quite hear that. Anybody remember the prophet's name? Habakkuk. That's a quote from Habakkuk in the Old Testament. The just shall live by faith. Uh, and so uh, there's this illustration of Moses' faith. There's this illustration of Habakkuk. Uh, this, this doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone was proclaimed all through Scripture. And this is, this is Paul's way of thinking all through Scripture. He's arguing for justification by grace alone through faith alone. He's not saying, now this is a new thing we've just come to understand since Jesus came and died and rose again. No, he's saying this is something that the saints have always understood. You should have always grasped this. It's always and only by grace alone. So, so Paul argues uh, Abraham in, uh, in Romans 4. He argues about Moses being an illustration of justification by grace alone in Romans 10. He argues an uh, illustration of, of Habakkuk that we've just seen here in, uh, in verse 11 of chapter 3. He makes the same point about Isaiah and Joel. All through Scripture, anybody who's ever saved was saved by grace alone through, through faith alone. That's how people were saved. Well then, if that's true, then why did God give the law of Moses? Was he just trying to throw in a test, a trick question to the people so that maybe they could... They, to see if they really believe, or why did he give the, what was his purpose for giving the law? Well, Paul tells us. Uh, first of all, I want you to notice how Paul's already told us in this letter why God did not give the law. Chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And he's talking about himself being a Jew. And he's saying, uh, we Jews who get it, who are saved, we understand this. The works of the law do not save. They never have and they never will. Have a look with me as well at uh, chapter 2, verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 21. You can kind of remember as you go through... Um, Galatians, that, uh, it's the 21st verse of the chapter where Paul says this. So, um, chapter 2, verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21, chapter 4, verse 21, all say the same thing. Uh, chapter 2, 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And did Christ die for nothing? No. Uh, he was essential. We had to have the Lord Jesus Christ and his atonement. We can't, therefore, be justified by the law. God wasn't going to send his son for nothing. Uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 11, we've, we've already looked at, but just skip down to verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Uh, God did not give the law to give us life, to give us life and uh, eternal life. 
Uh, and then chapter 4, verse 21, this very verse that we're studying here. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So why did God give the law? Well, it wasn't to justify us. It wasn't to make us right with God. That's never been the purpose of God. And if you ever try to use the law that way, you're using it directly opposite of the way that God was intending to, uh, to point us uh, and show us. The Galatians uh, used and were tempted to use the law uh, in the opposite direction that it was intended. You and I are tempted for that. And you see this, uh, this verse, I think, from Romans, Romans 3 uh, in italics there under, under the, the subpoint B. Uh, Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we know nobody's going to be justified before God by the law. We know what the law is not for. What is it for? What, what's the purpose then of the law? Uh, and it says there in that second half of that, of that verse, uh, through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. That's why God gave us the law. So we can see ourselves. The law is this gigantic mirror where we can see what we would otherwise be blind to and oblivious to. We can see our need for Jesus. That's why he gave it to Moses. That's why he gave it to us. We need this law to be able to see our need uh, for Jesus. Let me, let me see if I can explain this. Uh, what is the summary of the law? What does Jesus say the summary of the law is? What's the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? There's the summary of the law. And when Jesus says that, is, did he just write that himself and come up with that himself? Where, did, where does he get that? He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And it's not just Jesus who got that. That was People understood that in Jesus' day. They understood if you're going to summarize the law, it comes right down to this, it's love. Okay, so think about who Jesus is. Jesus is perfect. There's no fault in Jesus. Uh, you think about God. And this first, commandment, first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Of all the things that are created, that we love, that we enjoy, whether it's the creation uh, in terms of nature or each other, and we love one another, is there anything in all the cosmos easier to love than the Lord Jesus Christ? There should be nothing that's easier, because there's no flaw in him. There's no way in which he mistreats us. He always loves us perfectly. We always see perfect love in him towards the Father and towards the Spirit. Uh, and so for the, the Trinity, we have this picture of perfect love that we see nowhere else in all of our relationships and in all of creation. We see beauty that is unmatched in all of our experience. And we long for that beauty, and we finally see it in Him, and we, we have the picture of the one who is supremely easy to love. Then why is it that I can't go a single day or a single hour with loving Him with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength? Why is that so hard for me? Is there a problem with the law? Is that a faulty law? Is it illogical? No, it makes perfect sense. I ought to love him with all that I am, with every fiber of my being. Then why don't I? It's a problem with me. It's a problem in my heart. And that's why the law was given to us. Every detail of the law is aimed like an arrow pointing us to this one great command of love. To love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Incidentally, should it be hard to love our neighbor as ourselves? If we know how much we are sinners, should it be hard to be patient with other brothers and sisters in Christ or other sinners. No, we should be able to do that. We should be able to be tolerant and patient with them. And yet, is that easy for us? Anybody find that easy? Nobody finds that easy. Is there a problem with the law? There's no problem with the law. With any detail or any stipulation in the law, the problem is with me and my heart, and that's why God gave us the law, to show us the blackness and sinfulness of our heart and to show us our need for Jesus and our need for our, our Savior. Uh, even if it's not just in the in the law of God that we, that we understand this. You can understand this even from just general culture uh, because people have the law of God written on their hearts. Uh, this is going back a ways. Anybody remember the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? What's their great pearl of wisdom that they get? In all of their travels through time, what's the great pearl of wisdom that they get? Anybody remember? Be excellent to each other. Remember that now? 
be excellent to each other. That's the same thing as, as the great, greatest commandment and uh, the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so even this law is written on the hearts uh, of unbelievers. They get it, and it's there to expose us uh, to our natural hostility towards God, our natural self-centeredness, our natural preference for ourselves. It exposes the gap in the chart. You know, I, I mentioned earlier how, uh, if, if you can go back to the, the chart, I don't know if you can see that again. Uh, I mentioned earlier how uh, at the bottom we try to stick in this performance wedge to raise where we are, but there's also a wedge we can kind of stick in at the top. We just kind of put in this Santa Claus wedge where we think of God as, as this celestial Santa Claus where his job is just simply to be uh, giving and, and forgiving. And so we kind of dumb down the law and try to stick in the wedge uh, at the top. You can go back to the, um, to the, the sermon outline there. Uh, and so the law is given to us so that we would see our need for Jesus and cling to him and not go through this foolishness that the Galatians are going through of leaning upon the law to justify themselves. If the Galatians had but let the law speak to them, they would get that they need a big Savior. They would need uh, Jesus. And so what is Moses' gospel? We've gone through uh, the text here in Galatians. Y'all studied this. You've seen how Paul points out, this is my gospel. Uh, this is what I received from God. I didn't receive it from any man. Uh, we saw, uh, as, as uh, Phil pointed out, Peter's gospel in, uh, in Galatians 2. We've seen Abraham's gospel. Abraham's gospel is justified by, by grace alone through, through faith alone. Well, if you were to summarize what Moses' gospel is, what's Moses' gospel? Moses' gospel is you need Jesus, and you can't get it through obeying the laws that I'm giving you. That's Moses' gospel. It's not different from the gospel uh, of Christ. Uh, you see this all through Moses. So don't just take my word for it or Paul's word for it. You can also see it in Moses itself. You see the sacrificial system in Leviticus. And you see blood on every page. And it's pointed out to you that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And if you're an Israelite going through Israelite culture and going through the, the worship of the time, this is vivid for you. So there's morning and evening sacrifices. You take your sacrifice to the temple, you take your animal with you, and you yourself take the knife and you cut the animal's throat and you let the lifeblood drain out of this animal. Just before you've done that, you put your hands on the animal and you recite your sins, signifying the transfer of your guilt to this animal, symbolically. Uh, and then the animal is put to death, his blood is spilled, uh, this animal is, uh, is then burned as a burnt offering, and it's all pointing forward to Jesus. And there's all these vivid reminders, vivid pointers uh, to the Lord Jesus and our need uh, for Jesus. So Moses points this out in the law. He points it out in the sacrifices. He points it out in the narratives where he points out this need to trust uh, in the promise. So Jesus uh, is the obvious point of the Old Testament. This is another way that we see the old way to receive the promise. The old way to see the promise, I think you're getting by now, hopefully, that it's not different how we receive the promise. The old way to receive the promise uh, is the same promise in the same means of grace through faith. Jesus is the obvious point of the Old Testament. Um, you've got the quote from Jesus, uh, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Uh, do you remember where Jesus said that? He's walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, the disciples don't recognize him as Jesus. They're confused about what's happening. And Jesus says to his disciples... Uh, that they ought to get, they ought to grasp that he's on every page of the Old Testament. It's an obvious point. And we think, how is that obvious? But this is what Jesus says. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We ought to get it. The Old Testament saints ought to get it. And it's our hearts that get in the way, that don't see uh, Jesus, as he's vividly portrayed there. And so the law of Moses was given for a redemptive purpose. Not that we would be saved by the law, but that through the law we would be pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. After the time of Christ, though, circumcision, the ceremonial laws, can't be observed for a redemptive purpose. Why is that? Circumcision is given to point Moses and Old Testament believers forward to Jesus. They're anticipating that Jesus will come. They're looking for this promised seed who is to come, as we saw in Galatians 3. They're looking uh, at, with this sign of circumcision. There's, it's a bloody sign, and it's showing our need for blood atonement. And so in all these ways, it's pointing forward to Jesus. So if somebody is circumcised after Jesus has died and risen again, what are they saying if they're doing that for re religious purposes? 
they're saying Jesus isn't the Messiah. I'm still waiting for the Messiah. So if the Galatians were trying to be circumcised for religious reasons, that's the same thing as saying Jesus isn't my Savior. That's a big problem. So, so circumcision, uh, the ceremonial laws, can't be observed for the redemptive purpose that they had initially. Um, but whether it's... Uh, why, and one of the reasons why I'm so cranked up about this is because the problem that, G, that uh, Jesus, or Paul rather, is addressing with the Galatians is bigger than the problem of trusting in circumcision and the ceremonial law for your justification. You might think, I'm, I'm safe there, I'm good, this has nothing to say to me. The problem with the Galatians was much bigger than that. They could take any legit law from the Old Testament that we still observe today and still make an idol out of that. So you've got the Ten Commandments. They could still rely upon that for their justification. They could take any law uh, that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount, and they could say, I'm going to get my justification through this. And all of that is just as wrong-headed as using, that for cir- using circumcision or the ceremonial law for your justification. It doesn't matter what the law is, you can't get your justification by the law. Even if it's not God's law, even if it's a man-made law and the law of God written on your heart, you can't be justified by the law. Do you know a single unbeliever who feels like they measure up to their own standards? It doesn't happen because the law of God is written on our heart. There is no law that's a legitimate law that, uh, that we can get our justification from, that we can really truly measure up to. So trying to get your justification by the law is working in the opposite direction of its God-given purpose. And so let's come down to, uh, to uh, letter D here. How does Paul prove grace? Uh, in the Torah. Notice in verse 21, he says, tell me you who desire to be under law, do you not listen to the law? And then he goes on to talk about things that don't have anything to do with commandments. A lot of times when we hear the word law, we think Ten Commandments. We think uh, do this, don't do that. But law in, uh, in the original text here is it's the same word as Torah. It's, it's referring to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so when Paul's saying, don't you listen to the law when you want to be under the law, he's not just simply talking about commands, he's talking about another part of the Mosaic Revelation. Uh, he's talking about the narratives that are there, and that's what he goes on to describe, this, this narrative here of uh, Abraham and uh, Sarah and, uh, and Hagar. Uh, and so he's, he's argued that uh, the Mosaic commands support justification by, by grace through faith alone and not by works, and now he shows the principle of salvation by grace through faith in a narrative section uh, of the Old Testament. And then we come uh, here to this, uh, to see what, what Paul's talking about here uh, as we, we get down to look at verse 20, 25. Uh, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. We realize that Paul here in this section is bringing up yet another gospel. And so he's talked about his gospel, he's talked about false gospel that the, the Galatians are tempted to go away with, Peter's gospel, uh, Abraham's gospel. Here's another gospel, it's, um, it's Jerusalem's gospel. And again, this is a false gospel, not a true gospel, not something that God gave. In other words, we know that this is, because it's a false gospel, we know that this is not a reference to the Mosaic law. Um, so Jerusalem's, uh, Jerusalem's gospel. The events and characters shown... Um, in, the, in, in the narratives in, in Galatians, or uh, Genesis rather, show a contrast of two Gospels. And so you've got Hagar on the one hand, Sarah on the other. Man-made Gospel of Hagar and, uh, and the God-given Gospel shown through Sarah. We've got Ishmael and Isaac, uh, their offspring, that, that, uh, that signify and, and point to uh, believers and unbelievers, those who rely on the works of the law and those uh, who rely upon grace. And he says all, that uh, Hagar... And her son Ishmael uh, referred to which Jerusalem? What's, what's, the, what's the body of people or the city that he can point to and, and say this is, uh, this is an example of, of trying to get your justification by your works? Well, it's, it's the Jerusalem today. Uh, this is, and in, in not, not of our day, but this is Paul's day that he's talking about, first century Palestinian Judaism. Uh, this is the, the worldview, the religious perspective of Jerusalem of our day, Paul says. Uh, they're trying to rely upon uh, a different gospel. They're trying to rely upon uh, their own works for their salvation. Uh, whereas uh, the Jerusalem above is the mother of all of these uh, children, these believers. And so the two covenants are not Old Testament and New Testament. 
but two ways of seeking justification. That of legalism and works on the one hand, and that of faith on the other hand. Legalism results in slavery, and faith results in in freedom. So there's a a perspective of uh, the old way to receive uh, what was promised, and to receive the promise. Um, My wife and I have a favorite vacation destination. We love going to Glacier National Park. Anybody been there? We love it. And we, our favorite jumping off point for hikes is, uh, is Mini Glacier. And uh, our favorite hike there is um, uh, Grinnell Glacier. But uh, my, my in-laws also love this, my, my wife's parents. And they, they particularly like the Iceberg Lake Trail. And it's great. It's beautiful. And we've gone that trail uh, many times. And uh, as you go up through the Iceberg Lake Trail, uh, you go about three miles uh, along this trail, and you suddenly come to a trailhead for the Ptarmigan Lake. We've never been on this trail. It's only about a mile and a half that you have to go to get up to Ptarmigan Lake. Uh, but we've, we've never done that because we're on our way to, uh, to Iceberg Lake. But anybody who goes to Ptarmigan Lake has to go the three miles of the Iceberg Lake Trail just to get to the trailhead. That's kind of a picture for where we are in this sermon right now and where we are in this text. We've done all this work looking at the old way of receiving the promise and realize that, that Paul's perspective here in this text is it's precisely the same way as us. That's like the three miles of, uh, of Iceberg Lake Trail. And now we stand at the trailhead of this text where we can get into the meat of what Paul is really arguing here in this text. We, we've got his framework, we understand what he's saying, and we also see that he's, he's made the case and the argument uh, in this text that you can't be justified by your works. And now he's gonna, we're going to see some of the details here uh, of, of why that's the case. Why is it that we can't be justified by our works? Uh, the barrier to receiving what was promised, uh, the barrier to receiving what was promised is, is uh, illustrated with Hagar and her son. They illustrate a reliance on what we have the power to bring about uh, ourselves through our own works. So verse 23, uh, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Uh, and so you've got uh, this illustration, uh, God's promise to Abraham, I'm going to make a, a vast nation out of you, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And uh, uh, what, what, what's going to come from you, though you've never had a child, uh, and though you're in your old age, you're going to have a child, and I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. And, uh, and so a few years go along, and he and Sarah say to each other, well, gee, we've been barren our entire married life, uh, and childless, and uh, it doesn't seem like I can ever have children, Sarah is saying, and so why don't you have a child through, through Hagar? And so what Abraham and Sarah and Hagar that do, this plan that they concoct, is a plan to be able to bring about the promise of this promised seed uh, through their own efforts, through what they have within their own resources to accomplish. And that's a picture of how we try to uh, accomplish receiving the gospel through our own resources. Uh, and then, of course, in contrast to that is a reliance upon what we can't bring about as uh, Abraham and Sarah have, uh, have Isaac, their child. Our best efforts to justify ourselves uh, exclude us from the promise, uh, exclude us from, from God's uh, promise. Uh, one of the key things, before I uh, explain that, let me say that one of the key things to understanding any passage in Scripture is to be able to cooperate with the author. Uh, you don't want to just latch onto something and say, let me explore this idea. This is, I wonder what's behind this. Uh, rather, you want to see what the author is excited about and emphasizing and repeating and then cooperate with that and see that that's, that's where I should have my attention drawn because the author's trying to draw my attention there. So look at how Paul's trying to draw our attention to this fact that our best efforts to justify ourselves exclude us from the promise. He repeats it. So uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 25, at the very end, uh, he says, She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Talking about Hagar and Ishmael, and so she's just like Jerusalem. She corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem. They're in slavery with her children. What does this works righteousness bring about? Uh, It brings about slavery. It's enslaving. Uh, We also see the same point down in verse 30. He's also saying uh, this is working against the promise. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. 
Uh, and so there's no inheritance. The very thing that Abraham is really concerned about uh, when he's praying to God as he has no children, he's saying, Lord, uh, I have no children, and a slave in my own household is going to inherit everything that I have. Uh, how can I possibly, uh, how can these promises be true? And, uh, and God says, I'm going to give you an heir. And so the thing he's trying to accomplish is to have an heir, and so he has Ishmael, and what does he accomplish? Nothing. He doesn't inherit anything. Uh, Ishmael inherits, uh, inherits nothing. Uh, and so the, this promise is not accomplished there. And then there's another way that this is pointing it, pointed out that I think is really elegant, that Paul uh, points it out this way. Look back at verse 25. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she's in slavery with her children. Now if you can picture a map in your mind of the promised land, where is Mount Sinai? Is it the upper part of the promised land, in the, in the lower part, in the middle? It's not in the promised land. That's Paul's point. It says Mount Sinai in Arabia. So he's going out of his way to say where Mount Sinai is because he wants us to understand this is not in the land of promise. So when you rely upon the works for your justification, you're putting yourself outside the promise. And so there's kind of this, this, uh, this geographical imagery, as it were, to show us that our best efforts to justify ourselves exclude us from the promise, just like Mount Sinai is outside the promised land. Our works cannot uh, save us. They cannot justify us. Uh, but Paul goes further. He's putting this uh, more of a fine point on this. He's saying that works actually rule out grace. He's already made this point in chapter 3, verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Uh, and so the two are mutually exclusive. Either you're going to receive it by grace alone, through faith alone, or you're going to receive it from, uh, through your, your works. Uh, same idea in, uh, in chapter 11, verse 6 of Romans. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Our best efforts, if we're trying to present those efforts before God to in any way increase our view of ourself or our standing before God, uh, that's, try, that's basically saying, I don't want what's free because I'm trying to earn it. And so we're excluding ourselves uh, from grace. This is not um, something that, that should be new to us in the, in the Reformed tradition. This is all through our Reformed uh, confession. Uh, we're familiar with Isaiah uh, 62, 64, uh, where Isaiah says that our best, best actions uh, are like filthy rags. Uh, and so if we're trying to present our best actions to God, saying, here, won't you accept me because of these things, they're actually offensive uh, to God. Our best actions are, are filthy rags. They deserve uh, his judgment. Uh, they make us further indebted to God. Uh, and we have this in our, in our Reformed Confessions in the Belgic Confession. So in the Reformed Confessions, you've got the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confession. These are all part of the Reformed standards. And uh, you see here uh, this quote from uh, the, the Belgic Confession, we are indebted. We are indebted to God for the good works we do and not he to us. So, so the, here, get, get the picture of what's being said here in the Belgic. Uh, you're, you're feeling like you don't quite measure up, and so you're going to go on and, and draw out some of your good works and kind of close the gap there, what have you done? You've just taken out a further loan. You're more in the red than you were before. You've only increased the gap rather than closing the gap. You've made yourself further a debtor to grace. We are indebted to God for the good works we do and not he to us. What do we do to benefit God by the good works that we do? Does he, does he stand to benefit at all from what we do? No. And so God does not at all benefit from those things. So we are indebted to God for the good works we do, and not he to us, since it is he who works in us both to will and do according to his good pleasure. Moreover, although we do good works, we do not base our salvation on them, for, and here's the next part that you see here in the Belgic Confession, we cannot do any work that is not defiled by our flesh and also worthy of punishment. So just imagine for a moment that, that on the day of judgment, God gives you the opportunity that you can just simply delete everything that you've done that you consider a, a sin. And the only thing that you have to present before God on the day of judgment is your good works. And you're going to stand on the basis of those good works before God. 
What's his final verdict for you? You're guilty on the basis of those works because those works are filthy rags. They are repulsive to God because they fall short of the righteousness of Christ. They're not pretty like Jesus. They're not beautiful like Jesus. They're not desirable like Jesus. They're full of corruption, uh, whether in motive or in some, any, even one small part. And so our, our good works themselves are, are worthy of punishment. Okay, so as we're going through this, this study, as we think about this principle that, uh, that relying upon our works is a barrier to our being justified, what conclusion do you get about your good works then? Should you try to uh, throw out good works? Because really, works serve no purpose for justification, then I should throw out my good works. If that's your logic, then your logic is the same as the Jerusalem of Paul's day. Because the Jerusalem of Paul's day can't conceive of any other reason to do anything good except to justify themselves. That's the only way they have to relate with God's standards. I'm going to get my justification through this. If that's the way that you, if that's the, the conclusion you draw, you're still in the same mindset as the first century uh, Jerusalem. Uh, still only able to think of the law as a way to justify yourself. Now I'll leave um, the positive ways that we can use the law for Danny next week as he preaches on, uh, on Galatians 5. But uh, we have the law as a way to express love. It articulates love. And you'll come to that next week. Um, but there's, there's just that one other test you can use to kind of think of your think and, and look at your own heart to say, am I still trying to use the law for, um, for my justification? If you're, if you're trying to bolster your view of yourself through your obedience, then yes, you're, you're trying to do that. If you're trying to throw out uh, obedience, then you're still in that mindset of, uh, of the first century Jerusalem. And then we see one other thing that Paul's trying to, uh, to make sure we grasp here. Uh, he wants us to understand the reliability of the promise. Uh, the reliability of the promise. Can I trust the promise? That's the question that's there before the Galatians. Uh, that's why um, Paul is so careful to reassure the Galatians because he sees that the reason why they're going off to rely upon their own works is because they're doubting the promise. They have to be able to grasp that this promise is true, that it's really uh, reliable. Can I trust the promise? What about my disqualification? So the Galatians are saying, I'm a Gentile. I'm not holy like these uh, Judaizers. Uh, I need to become Jewish uh, like they are. And Paul wants to get across the fact that the only qualification for receiving the promise is grace alone through faith alone. Grace is only for the undeserving. And so if you're trying to get yourself to the point where you're not quite as undeserving, you've just disqualified yourself from, from grace, is what we've uh, just seen here. And so he wants us to understand that uh, the reliability of this promise. Notice how he's pointing this out to uh, believing Gentiles, uh, the Galatians, how they're included in the promise. And he says this over and over and over and over. He wants the Galatians to grasp this, to get this. Uh, verse 26, believing Gentiles are included. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery uh, with her children. And I'm reading the long verse, uh, verse 26. But Jerusalem above is free, and she is what? She is our mother. He's saying, Galatians, you're included. You're included in the believers. Uh, she is our mother. Uh, verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. They, the Galatians, they want to be a son of Abraham. They want to be like Isaac. And he's saying, you already are like Isaac, without the circumcision, without relying upon the law. Because Isaac is the illustration of grace alone through faith alone. And so, Galatians, you need to understand that, uh, that believing Gentiles who rely upon the promise of God uh, who, who rely upon Christ are like Isaac. They're children of, of promise. He says the same thing in the next verse, verse 29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. Born according to the flesh, born according to the spirit. Which is better? To be born according to the spirit. The Galatians would readily grasp that. They understand. It's, it's an amazing thing to have the almighty spirit of God that was there on the day of creation, that God used uh, to create uh, the whole cosmos, that he, he uses to work in his people. Somebody who's filled with the spirit of God, that, that's a good thing. 
you Galatians were born by the Spirit. Now, are you going to try to improve on that with your works? You can't improve upon that. You're born uh, by the Spirit. And so he's, he's uh, making sure that they understand that they're included in those who are, who are believers. And then down at verse, uh, verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And so he's saying again and again to the Galatians that believing Gentiles are included. So why is Paul so careful to, to make sure the, the, the Gentiles, rather the um, Galatians, understand uh, that they're included? It's because the jumping off point for all of their works righteousness is in doubting the gospel. And the, the key thing for us to understand is we're trying to get away from this works righteousness pattern that we keep coming up in our motives is to get the gospel. If you want to, and as we see in, in Galatians 5, we're, we're going to go on and see the, the acts of the sinful nature and the fruit of the Spirit. All the acts of the sinful nature are just manifestations of the fact that we're out of step with the Spirit. We're out of step with believing the gospel. And so when you see the acts of the sinful nature coming up in your life, the acts of the sinful nature are not themselves the problem. They're like the warning light on the dashboard. When you see that warning light come on in your dashboard, you don't just go and unscrew the light bulb in the dashboard and think you fixed the problem. The warning light on the dashboard is to show that there's a problem under the hood. You've got to fix what's going on in the car to actually get the, uh, the warning light to go off. Uh, and, and so it is uh, with all of the ways that we go astray. These are the warning lights that come on, and the real problem is that we've somehow begun to doubt the, the truth of the gospel. And, and so uh, that's why Paul's so keen on uh, having the, the Galatians understand that. Believing Gentiles are included. And then one last final thing here. We see the reliability of the promise uh, for people who doubt it in our passage, not just for the Galatians. They're not, they're not the only ones who doubt the promise. Who else in our passage was tempted to doubt the promise? Abraham. Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, they were tempted to doubt the promise. They, oh, it's not really just going to come the way that God's promised. We have to add our own, our own efforts. And so he's, he has this idea of uh, for those who are barren, those who are desolate, those who are absolutely powerless to bring about the desired outcome on their own efforts. And so you feel weak, you feel helpless, you feel completely dependent. For those who are barren and, for de- and those who are desolate, they can despair of the promise. Abraham and Sarah were tempted to despair of the promise. You and I are weak and helpless. You and I are completely unable to bring about the promise that God has, has, has given to us. And so he gives us this word of assurance that this promise is specifically for those who are barren, for those who are desolate, because the Almighty God intervenes into the lives of sinners where they are helpless to save themselves, and he gives them life, where they are helpless to give life to themselves. So verse 27, but Jerusalem above is, uh, excuse me, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one it will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And so there is this, uh, this abundance that's given to the one who's desolate, who can do nothing. Uh, and we've seen that same uh, principle in verse 23, but the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free uh, was born through the promise. Almighty God intervened into the life of Abraham and, uh, and gave him a child. When God gave that promise to Abraham, I'm going to make a mighty nation through you, and I'm not going to do it through Hagar. I'm going to do this specifically through Sarah. What was Abraham's response? He laughed. What was Sarah's response later when she was there with uh, the three people that were turned out to be God himself. Uh, And she overheard that she was going to have a child by that time next year. What did Sarah do? She laughed. Because she and Abraham both knew how ludicrous it was in terms of their own strength that that promise could ever come about. And that's a picture of how we are when we see that the standard for our righteousness is the absolute holiness of God himself. We laugh. There's no way I can do that. There's no way I can do that. I'm, I'm barren in myself. I can't bring this about. And so we need to understand the reliability of this promise that God himself is able to bring this about. Romans 4, 19 through 21. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Dear ones, the promise does not come from our works. but The promise comes only by grace, unearned grace, free grace, scandalous grace to sinners who don't deserve it, and it's received by, by faith alone. We have here in this table before us, we have pictures. We have uh, the sacrament. Sacraments are a sign and a seal of the promise. A sign is, is like a picture. And so if I was to, uh, to show you, uh, if I were to meet you, my wife wasn't with us, and I, I would say, uh, well, let me show you my wife, and I pull out my phone, uh, I'm not going to show you my wife in person. I'm going to show you a picture of my wife. It represents my wife. You understand who she is, what she looks like by seeing the picture. That's the way uh, the sign of the sacrament works. It represents the truth of the gospel so that you can grasp uh, the, 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 what the, the gospel is portraying. And so when we see uh, the bread that's given for us and broken for us, and we see the cup poured out, we see uh, the, the blood of the covenant, uh, we see that it is by grace alone, uh, this atoning work of Christ. Uh, and the sacrament is also uh, not only a sign, but it's a seal. Uh, the seal is like a signature at the end of a document. And so when you uh, have a, a contract, you, you close on your house, and you sign uh, on, uh, on that contract, you're guaranteeing the truth of that contract. You're guaranteeing uh, that contract. Uh, and that's the same thing that God's doing here. He's got his signature written in blood where we can see the truth of the promise that he's given to us. God knows that we waver in our faith. God knows that we need help. And so he tells us the truth of the promise. He gives us all kinds of arguments in his word as to why we should believe the promise. But here he gives us something visible and something tangible so that we can see the gospel and so that we can taste the gospel and see the promise and taste the promise. And so when you taste this bread, you're tasting a promise. When you drink this cup, you're drinking a promise. And this is the promise of your God who loves you to you, and he wants to get it through your head. As, as, uh, as Luther says, he wants to beat it into your head, this truth of this gospel that we can rely upon and that we rejoice in. Let's pray and, uh, and set these elements apart. Our gracious God, this is uh, but bread and uh, wine and juice. And uh, it is just simply created things. And yet, Lord, we ask that by your grace that these elements might be set apart from uh, their created purpose to their God-given sacramental purpose, that we might taste of you and taste of your promise, that we might experience when we take this sacrament, that we might experience the embrace of our Savior, confirming to us the truth of his promises. For we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thanking you for these things. Amen.